First Peter chapter one. Continuing on in our study of the epistle of First Peter, this morning our focus will be given to verses twenty two and twenty three of chapter one. First Peter chapter one verses twenty two and twenty three. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth, Forever. And the topic for our consideration this morning is Christian love. Christian love. With God's help, I want to examine and expound upon the subject of Christian love by considering first its mandate, second its manner, and third its motivation. Its mandate, its manner, And its motivation. And looking to the inspired words given to us by God through Peter, I want you to notice the mandate of Christian love articulated at the end of verse 22. Peter says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Peter says to believers, see to it that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. There is the command. That is the mandate. The divine order of God spoken by Peter through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is given not only to Peter's recipients back then, but to us today. Now, to help us comprehend the fullness of what is said in these verses, I want us to note several elementary yet essential realities concerning Peter's command to love the brethren. And the first reality I want to note about Peter's command to love is something that is expected of God. Do you see that here? Let me read it to you again. And as I do, I want you to catch the tone of what Peter says, specifically the authoritative assumption. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. You can almost see Peter's pointed finger pointing at his audience saying, Church, I'm talking to you. You see that you love one another, your brothers and sisters in Christ, with a pure heart, fervently. Peter does not say, listen, brethren, if you feel like loving one another, then you should. And if you don't feel like loving one another, then you should not feel like you have to do something that you don't want to do. Likewise, Peter, writing under the divine influence of the Holy Spirit, does not take up his pen and say, listen, loving each other is something you might want to seriously consider for the mutual benefit of everyone. No, the text says you 
ought to love one another because God expects you to love one another. In other words, Peter is telling us that loving one another is in accordance to God's holy will. Therefore, it is a non-negotiable order and is not up for debate. This command to love the brethren is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. Uh, United with this truth is the truth that there are no conditions attached to it. God does not say, love one another with a pure heart fervently if others love you. It does not say you ought to love one another with a pure heart fervently if others are in perfect agreement with you politically, theologically, and philosophically. Nor does it say that you should love one another with a pure heart fervently so long as the one you are reaching out to in love has a bubbly personality and they are not some weirdo who may dress funny, smell funny, or look funny. The command of God to the fellowship of God's people is see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Peter's command to love is something that is expected of God. The second reality I want you to note about Peter's command to love is that this command of Peter is not a new command, but an old command. In fact, Peter's command is rooted in the command of Christ given to his disciples just prior to his crucifixion. Jesus says in John 15, 17, These things I command you, that ye love one another. It was also Jesus who said, when asked, What is the greatest command given in Scripture? It was Jesus who said that the greatest command, the command of all commands, the summation of all the law and the prophets is to love God with all the heart, soul, mind and strength and to love others as oneself. And we find in looking to the law that Christ's command to love in John fifteen seventeen is echoed by Peter And this command echoed by Peter is rooted in God's command given in Old Testament law. Leviticus 19.18 says, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So as we read these words given in 1 Peter, we need to understand That these are not new truths. They are old truths. Peter did not create them in his own mind. He heard them spoken about from Jesus Christ. And Jesus was speaking to that which is in agreement with Old Testament Scripture. So there's the second reality that I want to cement on your mind about Peter's command to love. God has from the beginning commanded his people to exhibit Christ-like love. And then the third reality I want us to note about Peter's command to love is that Christian love stems from and is rooted in the believer's personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Peter says, seeing that you have obeyed the truth of the gospel, seeing that you have been brought to God through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And we can go back up to the first few verses of 1 Peter and see his reference to believers being born again, being birthed by God's Spirit. So Peter grabs hold on to that and is now exhorting us to love, seeing that you have been inwardly purified by the blood of Jesus Christ in consideration of the fact that you have personal faith in the Lord and God through His sovereign grace and love has called you unto Himself and has put you into a new spiritual family to belong to. See that ye love them with a pure heart fervently. So that is the mandate regarding Christian love. This mandate has three essential features that are attached to it. First, This command is expected of God. Second, this command has always been. And then third, this command stems from and is rooted in God's gracious work of conversion. We show love because He has shown us love. We show love because that's Christ-like. So continuing on in our examination of this command, in our second main point, I want you to notice the manner of Christian love. The manner of Christian love. And by manner I mean the specific way Christians ought to love one another. And I love this about God's Word. It answers every question for us. In verse 22, there are three particular attributes emphasized that describe how We ought to love. Notice them from the text. First, our love for each other ought to be unfeigned, meaning sincere and real, as opposed to fake, pretentious and two-faced. Second, our love for each other ought to be fervent, as opposed to cold, distant, detached, And apathetic. Our love for one another ought to be warm. It ought to be constant. It ought to be faithful through thick and thin. Third, our love for each other ought to be from a pure heart. The love we show for one another ought to stem from pure motives that expresses itself in pure attitudes unto pure goals. True Christian love ought to be demonstrated out of delight not out of duty. It should be viewed as a blessing rather than a burden. John tells us in 1 John that God's commandments should not be grievous or burdensome to the believer. So we don't walk among the fellowship of the church saying, I guess I have to love you because God's Word tells me I have to love you. So receive my love. No, Christian love ought to be from a pure heart. It ought to be fervent, zealous, sincere, and real. And in our consideration of these three attributes of Christian love, let me remind you that this 
is how Christ loved us and continues to love us. Notice the three attributes again. And then stick them unto the person of Christ. Christ's love for us is sincere. It is without hypocrisy. When the Scripture says He loves us, He means that He loves us. How do we know that He loves us? But God commendeth His love towards us. He demonstrated, He proved His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not two-faced. He doesn't say one thing and do another. What He says, He backs up by His actions. Christ's love is sincere. And then Christ's love for us is fervent and faithful and devote. The Bible declares that He loves His people with the sacrificial love. The Good Shepherd laid down His life for His sheep because He loves This love is a love that is personal. It's a love that is perpetual. It is a love that is approachable. It is a love that is felt. So Peter is here describing the love of Christ that ought to dwell in our hearts. Christ's love for us stems from a pure heart. His love for us is wrapped up in holy affections and pure purposes. Jesus willingly laid down His life on the cross. He gloriously rose again from the dead. Not because He was forced to, but because He wanted to. God did not take the Son of God, Jesus Christ, by the back of the neck and say, you're going to die and be a sacrifice for a people whether you like it or not. No, the Bible tells us Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus said, no man takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. Why? Because He is love. He has demonstrated His love. And it is in this way, Peter says, that we ought to love one another. We ought to love the brethren as He loved us. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our standard. Jesus is our inspiration. Now, in my describing of the manner of Christian love, I feel it is necessary to take the time to underscore the fact that true Christian love is never detached from other biblical commands and expectations. And what I mean by this is the biblical command to love other Christians and to love other people does not excuse, justify, cancel, turn a blind eye from known sin or does it fail to rebuke, correct and discipline an erring brother if needed. Said another way, true Christian love is never detached from biblical doctrine. Now, I am saying this intentionally because we live in a soft, spineless, effeminate, woke, emotionally fixated, easily offended culture that believes that it is unloving to judge, hurt someone's feelings, or tell someone that they are wrong. 
We are living in a society that is of the persuasion that everyone is right and nobody is wrong. And if you truly love someone, you will let them live how they want to live and you will stay out of their business. And sadly, this unbiblical idea of, quote, love, is creeping into Christian circles. This poisonous, feeling-oriented concept of, quote, love, among, quote, Christendom, has become the driving force of what many professing believers say and do. The banner that is held high from churches today is God is love. God accepts Everyone as they are. He is okay with anything and everything. What's the motto? He gets us. Therefore, if you are a believer in God, you should be too. You shouldn't judge. You shouldn't make anyone feel bad. You shouldn't hold anyone to an objective standard. You shouldn't expect anyone to live a certain way. And if you do, then you are a hateful, intolerant, racist bigot who is completely void of Christian love. Isn't this the culture we live in? Isn't this the ideology being pushed down our throats as we speak? So many people, even quote professing Christians... The heartbeat of their faith is, I'm for love. I'm going to prioritize love above doctrine and dogma. I'm going to preach on love more than theology. Because God is love. And Jesus said others would know his followers by their love. So let's all link arms and sing Kumbaya. Excuse me. Seems like Jesus, in love, called out sin, sinners, and sinful living. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that Jesus, in love, confronted others and expected them to live by an objective standard. I might be mistaken, but it seems to me that the Bible is packed full of examples and exhortations of Christian love being rooted in God's holy expectations. The last time I read through the gospel accounts, I read that Jesus was full of grace. Yes, he is full of love, but he is also at the same time full of truth. In the gospels, I read of Jesus in love rebuking the Pharisees. I read of Jesus in love, reproving his disciples. I read of Jesus in love, preaching the truths of God's word, despite whether people were offended or not. I read of Jesus in love, warning others that if they did not believe on him, they would die and go to hell. In the scriptures, I read that Jesus in love flipped over the tables of the money changers. Christ's love was not, I repeat, was not an all-accepting, sin-indulging, unoffensive, Bibleist, 
emotion rooted in the changing culture or the subjective opinions of men. Christ's love was rooted in and fashioned by the pure, authoritative, unchanging truth of Scripture. The Jesus of the Bible lived according to the authoritative truth of God's Word, and the Jesus of the Bible expected others to live by that objective, authoritative truth by exhorting others to obey God's holy standards. So that being so, it's needful that you and I recognize this morning that any love not rooted in and fashioned by the truths of God's Word is not true Christian love. Any love not rooted in and fashioned by unchanging Scripture is a lunacy and not love. So don't be deceived by others. Don't be fooled by what is being preached by false prophets. Sincere, fervent, heartfelt love always operates from thus saith the Lord. It always does. And you're going to be tempted to be tossed to and fro on the winds of compromise. More and more, mark my words down now, more and more, you are going to see instances of, quote, Christian churches and, quote, Christian pastors and, quote, Christian church members bowing before unbiblical ideologies. We're seeing it more and more. And you're going to see it more and more. So stick your feet in the truths of God's Word here and know that true love operates in truth. True Christian love does not distance itself from God's holy word. Love ought to be sincere. It ought to be fervent. It ought to be heartfelt. It ought to be Christ-like. Yes and amen, but it never neglects what God has said in His word. Now finally, looking to the third and final truth, I want us to consider from our text the motivation for Christian love. And under this point, I want to answer why it is needful for us to love one another. Why? As I mentioned in last week's sermon on holiness, often when God gives us a command, we find that He attaches to it a motivating reason why such a command ought to be obeyed. And we find that this is true regarding God's command to love one another. Regarding the command to love, God doesn't say, you need to love one another because I told you. He says, you ought to love one another because I have loved you and saved you. And this is the first motivation for brotherly love. We ought to love others because if we are Christians... Christ has loved us and died for us. We've established this already in our first point. Peter says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, see that ye love one another. And it's only reasonable that we love Christ's sheep as the good shepherd has loved his sheep. It's only reasonable if Christ lives within us 
That we would love the people that he has loved and died for. So that's motivation number one. We ought to love the brethren because Christ has loved the brethren. We ought to love the brethren because we belong to the brethren. And Christ, through his love, has brought us to himself. That's motivating reason number one. And connected with this first motivating reason for brotherly love is the second motivating reason for brotherly love, which is the truth that brothers and sisters in Christ belong to the same spiritual family. Which means... They have the same Father, the same Savior, the same Spirit living within them, the same desire to glorify God. And eventually, we will be living in the same eternal home, heaven, the sheepfold, where the Good Shepherd is. All who belong to Christ will be gathered together to worship the One who has died for us, to worship the One who is worthy of all praise and adoration. And again, it's only sensible then that Christians who belong to the same spiritual family demonstrate personal love one for another. The third motivating reason for brotherly love that is not specifically mentioned in our text but is a motivating reason that is assumed is a sobering fact that Christian love is a tangible testimony to this lost world. No doubt Peter is tracing in his mind the teachings of Christ. Brotherly love has already been preached to him in his Theology 101 class preached by Jesus himself. No doubt as Peter is pinning these words about Christian love, he's thinking of the time that Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if ye have love one for another. And the distinguishing characteristic of pure, sacrificial love is the greatest evangelistic means of the church. Jesus says we ought to love one another because it is a recognizable, discernible quality that demonstrates something of the love of God in Christ to this world. You see, this world at its very core is cruel, selfish, hateful, and unloving. Those who are without God and without hope in this life are full of envy, bitterness, and anger towards each other. And those who are Christians ought to show by their unselfishness, forgiveness, kindness, meekness, and grace that they are not of the world. That they've been called out of the world uh, through these Christian graces, through the fruit of the Spirit. There ought to be a message preached through the lives of God's children that there is a God and that there is a Savior who is merciful, forgiving, kind, and full of compassion. You may not realize it, but your life is a testimony to others. Others may not be reading their Bible, but they're reading you. And Peter knows that. And Peter knows as he's writing this to a people who are pressed on every side with trial, that sometimes is the temptation to look inward. During times of great trial and trouble and burden, we want everybody to come serve us with a golden platter. 
And Peter says, you can't do that. Get your eyes off of yourself. Set them upon your brothers because that is a living testimony to the world. That is a sermon in action. The preacher preaches, yes, but only to equip God's people to love one another so that our light might shine brilliantly in this world. That's why we have to love the brethren. Because the more we love the brethren, the brighter our light becomes. And the brighter our light becomes, the greater lighthouse we will be in this dark and perverse world. The flock of God ought to be diligent in loving one another. So that others will see the uniqueness of our faith and the uniqueness of our Savior. And through that, be drawn to the one who is love. We ought to love one another with a pure heart fervently because Christ has loved us and died for us because we belong to the same spiritual family and because our love is a tangible testimony to the lost world. Having examined, having expounded upon the truth in our text in the most simple, understandable way I know how, let me now take this command and press it on your heart By asking a question and making a comment. First, the question. Are you, personally, individually, are you striving to love others with a pure heart fervently? And what specific instances can you point to to validate that you are endeavoring to show love for the brethren? We ought to show love to all men. Yes, the Bible declares that. But it also declares, especially to them who are of the household of faith. So connected with these questions is this question. Who do you show brotherly love to? To those who love you? To those who are easy to love? To those who you do not clash with? Perhaps I should ask, what are some tangible ways... That you can show love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Truly, think about it. Pray over it. Let these questions ruminate in your mind so you might act upon it. God expects and commands us, you, me, to love one another. God expects that our congregation be a place where Christian love abounds. So the first question I'm asking is, in what ways are you showing sincere, sacrificial, Christ-like love to others? It's one thing to know in your mind that you ought to love. It's one thing to feel love in your heart. But biblical Christian love assumes that you will go out of your way and tangibly show Christian love. So are you? Have you? Do you? In what ways? Consider this. This is the application of the text. And then the comment after the question. Here's the comment. Be careful of holding others to a false standard or flawed expectation of Christian love. Let me repeat it again. Be careful, brothers and sisters in Christ, Be careful, church members, of holding others to a false standard or flawed expectation of Christian love. 
Listen, church, if there is one thing that has caused great damage to the unity of churches and the cause of Christ, it is this. When you and I set up specific classifications of what Christian love ought to look like, mark my words, eventually we will become disappointed, sinfully critical, and bitter. Let me explain. Sometimes there are those who come among the church who eventually get upset and leave, accusing the church of being unloving because they've created in their own mind some man-made standard of what love is supposed to look like in their particular situation. For instance, sometimes there are people who stop by the church office throughout the week. They knock on the door. They tell their sad story of their homelessness, of the bills that need to be paid. And when I explain the way in which we hand out funds in our church family, when I begin to prod to see if they really know the gospel in the first place, because that's the most important manner, God sent them here for a reason, so I want to deal with their soul first and foremost. Many times, people who come by the church looking for a handout say, quote, If you really are a Christian church, if you really loved people, you would buy me a hotel room. If you love like Christ loved, you would write me a check for $1,000 right now. You would do what I want you to do. And if you don't, you don't love. Go on our Google reviews and find the one star of the man calling me a false prophet. Because I've never met him. He's never come to our church. He called on the phone. He asked if I would marry he and his girlfriend. And I said, no, I don't even know who you are. Well, if I become a member and I promise to become a member, then you would know who I am. I said, well, we need to talk through some things first. Don't go to Calvary Baptist Church in Yucca Valley. The pastor's a false prophet. He won't even marry strangers. You see? He didn't do what I want to do. I don't even know if this man's a Christian. I don't even know anything about who he is. What his desires are. I never just agree to do a wedding to some stranger off the street. But you see his expectation. If you really love, you would do what I want you to do. Likewise, there are times when church members, in their bitterness, will fool themselves into believing that the church hasn't shown them love. The church hasn't reached out to them in their time of need. When the reality is, the church wasn't informed of how they could help. And the one complaining about lack of love either came into church pretending that everything was okay Sunday by Sunday and they remained distant from the fellowship of the church and or pushed people away when they tried to reach out. Now I say all this to say you and I must be careful of conjuring up in our minds some standard of what Christian love looks like. Likewise, likewise, listen, we must allow... God's people to obey God in loving upon us. I know that's hard, but we have to do it. We must be open and honest in telling our brothers and sisters in the Lord what 
they can pray for, how they can be a blessing, and in what way they can help bear your burdens. I hate to say it, but it's true. Church members who get mad and leave the fellowship of a church because they weren't shown love, as they say, nine times out of ten. The real reason is they weren't being shown love as they desired. As they desired. Also, the same church members who get mad and leave because, quote, nobody reached out to them are the same ones who rarely, if ever, went out of their way to show brotherly love to others. Sadly, they've developed a twisted view that Christian life is about others serving them and in a very real way they become guilty of what they accuse others of. They sit at home saying, nobody's reaching out to me. And here I come as a pastor. Well, who have you reached out to? It goes both ways. I've heard it once. I've heard it a dozen times. Pastor, I'm upset. I'm leaving the church. Why? Nobody came to visit me when I was in the hospital. I had no idea you were in the hospital. Nobody knew. You didn't call. You didn't ask for prayer. Well, Pastor, I'm mad and upset. No one came to help me move to my new home. We didn't know you needed help to move to your new home. If you would have told us, we would have gladly sent a crew your way to help you move to your new home. Well, no one called. No one sent a letter. No one texted. No one visited. No one offered help. I'm sorry, you must be suffering from amnesia because I can remember instances after instance of people showing themselves friendly, calling, texting, offering help, and you turned them down. You avoided them. You stayed away from the fellowship of the church. You shot yourself in the foot. So we need to be oh so careful. Listen, church, you know of particular instances. You can think of people who sat in these pews, who left in bitterness, who want nothing to do with Christian churches as we speak because they've created some false expectations, some man-made standard of what Christian love ought to look like for them. I'm telling you, be careful. Because the devil, as a roaring lion, will set this up in your mind to take you down and to destroy the unity and fellowship of the church. Be careful. Be careful. Get your eyes off yourself. And realize Jesus Christ came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life. A ransom for many. Finally, let me conclude by declaring once again that true Christian love can only be practiced and appreciated if we are truly in Christ. If we've been genuinely born again, if we have living faith in the living Savior, that's the only way we'll be ever, ever be able to exercise Christian faith. For without Him, we can do nothing. So I ask, do you know Christ? Do you know Him personally? Do you know Him savingly? Have you experienced the love of Christ in your heart? Has He wooed you by that love? Has He birthed you unto His kingdom 
through the power and influence of His grace and love. If not, Scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe the Spirit of God would open your eyes this morning and cause you to see that God's love, Christ's love, is a love that brings salvation. It's a love that brings hope. It's a love that brings peace. It's a love that brings joy and satisfaction. I close with the words of John, 1 John 3.18. John says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's easy to say that we love. It's another thing to actually show tangible ways of love.